0: Good evening. You know, every parasha has its theme that everyone guesses the rabbi is going to talk about, right? What well, was the? Uh, you know, everyone thinks, yeah, for sure, the rabbi is going to talk about this theme. Parashas Baha'u'llah has several themes. Uh, right away, it starts off with the lighting of the menorah. That's a great thing to talk about. It also speaks about Pesach Sheni, the second Passover, and the lesson that we learned that it's never too late. Oh, that's an awesome! Right, we really like to talk about that theme. Um, there's bin There's the, you know, in fact, the, 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 the parasha describes how exactly the Jewish people would journey in the desert. Last week we learned how they, I mean, two weeks ago in Prashad the we learned how they set up their camp. And then in this week's parasha, we learned how they actually traveled. What was it that caused them to travel and what was the process of traveling, etc. And as they traveled, Meshach Rabbeinu would say the famous Hayi bin Sayah he um, would say, Kuma Hashem, you know, may God rise and fight with, the, with our enemies. Um, there are some tremendous lessons to learn from the idea that the Jewish people traveled in the desert and the process of their traveling. But today we are going to focus on a, a topic which um, is not very famous with this parasha. Even the actual story that it comes from, we usually focus on a different element of the story, but today we're going to focus on a, less, uh, a lesser known Element of the story, and it's interesting that it's not so known, because typically this should be something that everyone should know very very well, because this is um, this is in fact so crucial to the authenticity of the tradition of Jewish tradition. Um, so instead of just keeping you all in the dark, I'm gonna just go straight into it. Okay, uh, the 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 talk that we will be uh, learning from the rabbi was actually said Shabbos Bereshis, which means. It was the first week after Simchas the first Shabbos after Simchas so Torah, the Rul of the Parashat of And uh, my educated guess is that that year, it was like a three-day holiday. There was Simchas Torah, so Shemini Yatzeret, Simchas and then right after that came Shabbos. So Shemini Yatzeret was Wednesday night and Thursday, Simchas was Thursday night and Friday, and it went straight into Shabbos. Um, this was, I believe, from 1985. 1984. Um, what, why am I saying this? You know, because I, I like always uh, sharing with you. You know the the the, the setting of the farbringen. So let me just give you a little bit of an understanding of what, what was unique about this farbringen in which this with this talk was was given. So the Rebbe would have traditionally a farbringen the night of Simchas Torah. Okay, so in, in this case, Thursday night. Which was the night between Shmini Atzeres and Simchas Before we did our kafis, the Rebbe would have a febraying. Went for several hours. Febraying started at nine o'clock, nine thirty, and would go till close to twelve. And one o'clock was our kafis, One o'clock in the morning. This is after the night before. The Rebbe also danced Akafis. Anyway, the point is the Rebbe would have a febraying on Thursday night. Then Friday, Friday during the day was Simchas so there was services and there was hakafot. And the Rebbe would always have a Febrengin on Simfas Torah by day. So the Rebbe would have a Febrengin on Friday. But since right after the Febrengin was going straight into Shabbos, so the Rebbe would end the Febrengin at a certain point, and they would get ready for Shabbos, and then it would be Shabbos, right? So Friday night, Shabbos by day. So the Rebbe would always have a Febrengin that Shabbos after Simfas Torah. So after services, the Rebbe would have another Febrengin, mind you, in the past 24 hours, or 36 hours, this is already the third Febregit, right after the prayers. So that would go on for several hours, and then so that was for the Shabbos, but then since the Rebbe was not able to distribute from the cup of blessing, because at the, usually by, by a holiday on, during a festival, at the end of the festival, the Rebbe would have a Febregit, and he would, uh, do all, he would He would wash hamotzi, he would, he would, he would eat bread by the Febregit, he would have challah, and then at the end of the Febringian, he would do Mazon, he would do the grace after meals, and he would do so with a glass of wine. And then afterwards, they would pray the evening prayers, mariv, and then the Rebbe would make haftalah, and then the Rebbe would distribute from his cup of wine to all the thousands, tens of thousands of people that would come by to get a little bit of wine from the Rebbe. This the Rebbe would do every, at, at the conclusion of every holiday. Rosh Hashanah, Simkos Pesach, and Shavuot. But if Simchas goes straight into Shabbos, he wasn't able to do it at the end of Simchas So that next day, the Shabbos, after he already had a Fabregion right after services, towards the end of Shabbos, he would have another Fabregion. He would wash his hands and eat Hamoyitzi, and he would have a long Fabregion, and then he would do the Berkat mazon, he would do the grace after meals, and he would pray the evening prayers, and then he would make Abdullah, and then he would give out, Kesha Brach, he would give out a cup of blessing. So in 48 hours, there were four Fabregions. Can imagine just the, the uh, let's put it this way, forget about, forget about the, the, how hard it was to retain all of that information. What's so amazing to me is that people were able to experience such awesome experiences in 48 hours for them. Every fair brain was, was was an amazing experience. And here, I don't know if it's three, some of them are four, sometimes it were five or six. Some of them were two and a half, whatever. Yeah, in 48 hours, we could speak for over 10 hours. Yeah. Anyway, so this talk came from talk, the talk, the 4th February. Okay, so this is, I never started to discuss this idea. All right, so let's go into this week's parasha. We learned in this week's parasha the Jewish people are complaining. What's new, right? They're complaining. Why are they complaining? They want to have meat. That's their kvetch. It's not enough that they have manna, they have food falling from heaven, they want to have meat. So God, so Moshe Rabbeinu comes to God. He says, "May where am I going to have meat for, for, this, for this nation, for this multitude? He, he wasn't complaining to God, I don't have enough meat to provide them. Really what was going on was he says, God, really, I have to deal with this? I have to deal with providing them with deli? Like, that's not what I'm here for. I'm not here to give them, uh, you know, uh, steaks. That's not what you need Moshe for. Moesha Rabbeinu, he is the prophet, he is the one that is bringing Torah down to the people, and they're busy with Really, They want ribeye. They want this, they want that. This, col- this deli cut, col- that deli cut, col- he's crazy. What's going on over here? So Hashem told him, he says, no. They need Moisha. In other words, yeah, it is your job. You have to provide them deli too. But Moesha Rabbeinu said, I, <laughs> myself, I should deal with all of this. So Hashem told him, he said, look, Gather together 70 elders. And these 70 elders, they are going to join you in the leadership of the people. Okay? Now, how do you become a leader in the Jewish nation? It's not just, oh, now I'm a leader. Moshe Rabbeinu wasn't just a charismatic person. He didn't just have leadership skills. He had a legitimate mandate from God to be the leader of the people. It was a divine mandate. The, the Jews heard God speak to Moses at Sinai, right? So this wasn't just the fact that Meshach Rabbeinu was an effective leader. He was the one who had legitimate, he had, he had a real creed, right? No, he was credible. So what's going to make these 70, these 70 uh, elders credible leaders of the people? There has to be some type of divine something for them. So source number one, page three. The Lord said to Moses, Assemble for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the people's elders and officers, and you shall take them to the tent of meeting, the mishkan, the tabernacle, and they shall stand there with you. I will come down and speak with you there, and I will increase the spirit that is upon you and bestow it upon them. Then they will bear the burden of the people with you, so that you need not bear it alone. What's going to happen? God is going to speak to Moses. And, like the prophecy that's filling Moses, is going to overflow from Moses and flow into the other seven. The other 70 will also become prophets. They will also be filled with that divine mandate that Moses had. They'll be filled with that as well. It's not that Moses is losing out anything. In fact, our sages tell us that Moses, at that point, when, when the other 70 were kind of and say, it's not, it's not, uh-huh, Huh? No, 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 they weren't in training. But when, when these 70 were kind of taking from Moses this this divine inspiration, you think, well, maybe maybe Moses was losing out. He said, no, 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 Moses was like a flame on a candle. If you have a flame and you want to light other flames, what do you do? You take a candle, you bring it to the flame, and boom, you got another flame. Did that original flame lose out? Does it diminish at all? Not at all. The flame never diminishes the more that it shares. So Hashem is telling me, what's going to happen? How am I going to arrange a new group of Jewish leaders through coming and speaking with you and filling you with prophecy that you already have? And that's going to overflow from you to them. So we see here's two things. In order to be a legitimate Jewish leader, one has to have that divine mandate, which comes from God. But how does it come to that new leader? Through Moses. It's not that God said, Hey, bring me seventy and I'll go and I'll have a talk with them by the burning bush. <laughs> I'll make each one of them another leader. Once God made Moses, all leadership, all mandate of Jewish leadership flows through Moses. Not it's not God directly with the new leader. It's through Moses. Yeah. yeah. What's the story with Yitro? Right. So, so the story with Yitro, so that was with regard to teaching, it wasn't leadership. It wasn't leadership of, of, the, of the nation. It was teachers. It wasn't they came with problems. They came with questions. They were coming to Moses. Yitro was not upset that that Moshe Rabbeinu had set up a shingle and said, "Anyone who has troubles, come to me." That's what Moshe Rabbeinu is for. You have a you have a problem, come. Okay. His problem was the fact that in order for someone to learn terror, they had to come to Meishad Abed. In order for someone to learn Olive base, in order for someone to learn anything in terror, they had to come to Meishad Abed. So what's going on? That's not how it's going to work. Well, the meat is, that's not learning terror. The meat is a problem. There's an issue, right? We have a problem. We have to provide for the people. And Meishad Abed says, I, I, don't, I don't connect with this whole situation. I don't give out deli cuts. So God says, okay, we're going to have to have another seven that are going to deal with deli cuts. They have to deal with the meat, so to speak, but they have to—they have to have that—that that, in other words, just like Moshe's leadership was due to his divine mandate, they also need to receive a divine mandate. How are they receiving that divine mandate through Moses? Let's go further. Source number two. This takes us to all the way later on in Parashas Pinchas. So we learn over there. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, this is Pinchas. Um, so after Moses was told, this is another. This is forty years later. This is this isn't the first year. Uh, this is uh, this story that we're learning in this week's parasha happens in, the, in the, like the second year when the Jewish people were in the desert. Forty years later, we have the story that there was no more water left, and Moses hit the rock instead of speaking to the rock, and God punished Moses that he's not going to go into the land of Israel. So what did Moses think about right away? Who's going to lead them? Who's going to take care of them? So Hashem tells him, but Yeshua, Joshua is going to be the one to lead him. And he tells him, I want you to appoint, to designate Yeshua as the next leader. How are you going to do that? Source number two: the Lord said to Moses, Take for yourself Joshua, the son of Nun, a man of spirit, and you shall lay your hand upon him. The word is the Samachta Es yodcha'olo. Smicha doesn't just mean to lay, it means to lean. Like you lean, you lean on a table to lean on a table. So he's telling him is, take your hand and lean it, lean it on Joshua. Moses did as the Lord had commanded him, and he took Joshua and presented him before Elazar the Kayin and before the entire congregation. He laid his hands upon him and commanded him in accordance with what the Lord had spoken to Moses. So how did Yeshua become the leader of the Jewish people? How did he become the next link in the chain of tradition? Because Moshe leaned his hands up. Samach smicha. From then on, the, the concept of uh, of ordaining another Torah leader, another Torah authority, is called smicha. To lay, to lean, the previous one, Moshe, Yeshua, whatever it is, they lean on the next one. It doesn't necessarily have to be with the hands, but the point is that ordination is the same idea as that ordination that Meshara Beinu did to Yeshua, in accordance with God's instructions. Let's see how Maimonides describes it. At least one of the members of the high court, lower court, or court of three, must have received smicha ordination from a teacher who himself had been given smicha. What is smicha? Our teacher Moses ordained Joshua by placing his hands upon him. As the Torah states, he laid his hands upon him and commanded him. Similarly, Moses ordained the 70 judges and the divine presence rested upon them. And so apparently, the 70 judges that were brought together in this week's parasha also, they received smicha from Abim. These Those elders ordained, so once someone received smicha, now he could give smicha. Right? Um, similarly, uh, the, thus, those who are I would say those elders ordained others, and the others still, still others, in later generations. Thus, those who are ordained extend back to the court of Joshua and to the court of Moses. That's what smicha means, an unbroken chain of ordination going all the way back to Moses. How is the practice of smicha practiced for all time? The person conveying ordination does not rest his hands on the elder's head. Instead, he is addressed by the title of rabbi and is told you are ordained and you have the authority to render judgment even in cases involving financial penalties. At first, whoever had received smicha would convey smicha on the students. Afterwards, as an expression of honor to Hillel the elder, the sages established that smicha would not be conveyed upon anyone unless license had been granted by the nasi, by the president of the court. So what's smicha? That one elder who had received smicha from a previous elder is able to ordain the next one. By the way, smicha only works if the one who's receiving smicha is worthy of that ordination. Someone who's not worthy, worthy of that ordination, smicha is worthless. Smicha is meaningless. right? It's only someone who is worthy of being a Torah authority if, a, if someone already has that unbroken chain of ordination is able to convey it to the next one. Okay. Page four on the bottom. So we're going into the sicha, into the talk from the the first ordination was the ordination of Joshua by Moses. God instructed him to lay his hand on him, and he did so. He laid his hands upon him and commanded him. Similarly, Moses ordained the 70 elders, and as Maimonides writes, it was those elders who ordained subsequent generations the linking later generations back to Joshua and Moses. Since this ordination constitutes a mitzvah as part of the mitzvah to appoint judges and law enforcement, right? We have a specific mitzvah to set up a court of judges, and in order for the court to be legitimate, it needs to have at least one member that has smicha. That means that keeping that unbroken chain of ordination alive, that's a mitzvah. So every time that an elder gave smicha to another one, that was a mitzvah. Every person who was so ordained with the link of tradition back to Moses is obligated to teach Torah to students and to endeavor to ordain those who are worthy of ordination. In the words of the verse, do not withhold good from its owners, right? So every person who has learned Torah and has received smicha has to teach others Torah to the point that they are worthy of receiving smicha as well. This is an especially worthy endeavor because it continues the link of tradition to the next generation. Just how important is ordination? How important is smicha? How far must one go to ordain a new generation of scholars? The following story of Rabbi Yehuda ben Bava brought in the Talmud will provide us with some insight. All right, so what does the Talmud tell us? One time, the wicked kingdom of Rome issued decrees of religious persecution against the Jewish people with the aim of abolishing the chain of ordination and the authority of the sages. They said that anyone who ordains rabbis will be killed, and anyone who is ordained will be killed. And the city in which they ordain the judges will be destroyed. And the signs identifying the boundaries of the city in which they ordained judges will be uprooted. <laughs> no, no, no prisoners. That's it. They're getting rid of this. These measures, measures were intended to discourage the sages from performing or receiving ordination due to fear for the welfare of the local population. Okay. So how can you give smir So what did Rabbi Hula and Baba do? He went, you're on page six, he went and sat between two large mountains, between two large cities, and between two Shabbat boundaries. In other words, between Usha and Shafaram. He went to no man's land. He went to a place that wasn't even on the map. Nowhere. The middle of nowhere. In a desolate place that was not associated with any particular cities, that he not endanger anyone not directly involved. And there he ordained five elders. And they were Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Shimon, I believe that's Rabbi Shimon Bar Yichai, by the way, uh, Rabbi Yosi and Rabbi Lazar ben Shamuah. Rabbi Adia said that Rabbi Nechemia was also among those ordained. He ordained the next generation of great, of, of great leaders, of Torah leaders. When their enemies discovered them, Rabbi Yehuda ben Bava said to the newly ordained sages, My sons, run for your lives. They said to him, My teacher, what will be with you? Rabbi Yehuda ben Bava was elderly and unable to run. He said to them, in any case, I am cast before them like a stone that cannot be overturned. Why? Because even if they're going to try to, to run away with him, they will catch up to them. And so they're going to kill him. And if they run away without him, they're going to catch up to me. I'm dead anyway. Uh, people say about this incident, that we're going to the bottom of the air. people say about this incident, the Roman soldiers did not move from there until they had inserted 300 iron spears into him, making him appear like a sieve pierced with many holes. Basically, that was the end. That was the tragic ending, the tragic death of Rabbi Judah ben Baba. Why was he killed? Well, what did he give up his life for? Not for Shabbos, but not for kosher, for smicha. For, for continuing that chain, that unbroken chain of ordination dating all the way back to, to Moses. So, uh, you know, first of all, there's a few things that we can learn from the story. How important smicha is. Let's see how the Rebbe says this. This story teaches us two points. The evil empire understood that ordination was a fundamental element of Jewish life and therefore outlawed it. After all, the decrees all focused on fundamental Jewish practices, such as circumcision, Shabbat observance, and so on. The, the Romans, didn't, didn't, uh, they weren't busy with uh, getting rid of all the mezuzahs. The mezuzah is an important mitzvah, right? But one won't say that a mezuzah is the a foundational mitzvah of Judaism, right? It's it's important. It's it's definitely an important mitzvah. You can't compare to Shabbos or circumcision, right? The bris. The Romans they ran after the the main the very very important ones, and uh, the fact that they outlawed smicha shows that even the Romans understood that smicha is so important. And I will talk soon why why that's so important. But another thing, and number two, Rabbi Judah ben Baba sacrificed his life for the sake of ordaining students. Now, so, so first of all, why is smicha santa? so important? Just to illustrate uh, the question, today we don't have the smicha. Well, that, that chain actually was broke. The chain was broken. Oh, but that, that's not the same thing. It's not, today, when we call rabbinic ordination, we call it smicha, but it's not the legit, the real smicha. No. Smicha means that this rabbi can say, I got smicha." This rabbi, this rabbi, boom, 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 all the way to Meisha Rabbi. There's a direct chain, right? A direct and you know, unbroken chain. At a certain point, that chain broke. It stopped. So one second. And Judaism is functioned, right? Judaism is functioned, right? So why did Rabbi Huda bin Baba risk his life for smicha? So let me just explain what smicha means. See, today a rabbi is a nice guy. That's what a rabbi is. He teaches. He can get nervous sometimes, scream at someone, but that's the worst he could do. Right? The rabbi's bark is worse than his bite. There isn't much that the rabbi could do to anyone. Right? Other than give them a matzo ball, a challah, and that's it. That's all a rabbi could really do. A police officer If they come up to you and they, whatever, they say something or they they put you under arrest and you resist, you're in trouble. Who's the police officer? Who is he? He's a representative of the law. And you are resisting the law. You're in trouble. You're in serious trouble. Right? In other words, in most countries, there's such a thing called authority. There's, There's a government. There are representatives of that government and that's it. Can an officer arrest you if, if he doesn't have a badge or if he's been discharged of his duties? No, they can come, they can arrest you, put you in handcuffs and chains. It's nothing. There's not going to be a record of it, and you're not going to go to jail for it, for resisting that arrest. What's the difference? I understand. Because he has the badge, if he tells me to do something, I have to listen. But now that he doesn't have the badge, I don't have to listen. But what's, what's the deal? What's the idea here? That anyone that is a legitimate representative of the government. You must listen. There's no such thing as just uh, not listening, right? Resisting or, or going against what, what they say is, is to, it constitutes a crime. In Judaism, Moses was a king, okay? This man had power. If Moses said something and someone resisted, you were in serious trouble. There was a serious problem. here. Exactly. Korach went boom because he resisted and he went against Meishah Rabbeinu, right? I'm saying in, in general, you have to realize that Meishah Rabbeinu was a king. He had a government going on here. People had to, you know, listen to the king. When Meishah Rabbeinu passed away, Yeshua took over. What, what did, did Meishah do? He was seymich. He, he gave him the mandate. Now you are the leader of the people. They have to listen to you like they listen to me. Okay? So now, when it comes to Torah, in general, I, by now we, we know that Torah encompasses a lot of things. Torah is not just, you know, uh, different rituals or prayers or songs and hymns. Torah encompasses every aspect of Jewish life, civil life, money, money issues, right? There's, there's a lot that goes on in Torah. Torah deals with, with, with death penalties, right? There's a murder case. It goes to a and they deal with it. And they might even put someone to death as a result. Not today, whatever, but the point is, let, let's talk here in the original organic Torah situation. Now, who, who are these people to officially haul in a guy and give him lashes? Who are you? Who am I? I'm a representative of the Torah. Says who? Well, I received smicha from this one who received smicha from that one who received it from Moses. No one's going to counter the, the authority of Moses, right? So a Beisdin, a Sanhedrin, a a Jewish court, someone who had smicha, represented the ultimate authority in Judaism. That's what they represented. They weren't able to do things on their own, make up stuff. But they represented legitimate Torah authority. Going against someone who had smicha was risky business. You couldn't do that. It didn't work that way. We'll see, we'll see soon why why it's so important to appreciate this concept. So in other words, Smicha was not simply saying, oh, now this guy is called doctor. Now you're called now, now you're called rabbi. Today the title rabbi, whatever, it's a title. Then the title rabbi meant that he's not a king, but, but but he has authority, right? You call someone officer, he's a police officer, that means he he represents the the government, he represents law, right? if a judge gives an order, it's a court order, violating a court order is a crime, right? So in Judaism, the Beisden, those that had smicha, when they gave an order, violating that court order was a serious offense. It wasn't a joke. It was a serious offense. Well, It wasn't optional to follow what this musmach, what this person had smicha had, right? All right, so one second. Now, before we go further, I think also it's another very important idea, it's very important to understand. One of the greatest misconceptions of Judaism is that the rabbis are arguing about everything. That is a lie, an absolute lie. Say, so what do you mean? I open up the Mishnah. They're fighting about everything. They can't agree on nothing. Huh? One second, one second. Yeah, open the Talmud. They're fighting about everything. The rabbis of the Mishnah, the rabbis of the Talmud from Moses until today. All rabbis that keep to the tradition, they agree on everything. They agree on everything. Certain details are up for conversation. Certain details were were given over to the the leaders and to the Torah scholars of every generation to work out. Okay, that's where there could be discussion. But there was never a conversation or an argument whether Shabbos is on Saturday or on Sunday or on Tuesday for that matter. There was never an argument whether tefillin has to be black or blue. There was never an argument whether the four kinds that we take on on sukkahs, whether it might be an orange and not an esri, a certain type of citrus. No one ever, ever brought up the idea that it might be an orange. No one ever brought up the option if you can't find a palm branch, take a branch from a different tree. What? What are you talking about? We've got Judaism, my friend. This is Judaism that comes directly from Moses. No one ever had an argument whether on Shabbos what the definition of work is. There was never an argument about that. Never an argument. Moses was very clear what the definition of work is. Extremely clear. There was no no question about it. So what's going on in the Mishnah? They're fighting all day. They're not fighting about anything. Moses gave them a tradition of Pharaoh. Moses gave them rules of how to learn the Torah and how to understand the Torah. And they all agree on those rules. There's no, there's no discrepancy in that. Part of the whole idea of the evolution of Torah is, is that people are going to have to understand in their own mind what the conclusion should be. It's inevitable that there's going to be disagreement because everyone is different. And then when there's disagreement, guess what's going to happen? We're going to have a vote. And the Allah is going to be according to the majority. And no one argues with that. No one argues with that. So if you open up the mission, and you find Beis Shammai says this and Beis Hillel says that. Yeah, these two these 2 these schools, one of Shammai, one of Hillel, they're arguing about everything. So you think, wow, there was like two Judaism was going on. That's not true. That's not true. The arguments happened in the school. The arguments happened in the academy. And then at the end of the day, they said, okay, let's take a vote. We all voted. Beis Hillel was the majority. That's it. Everyone in Beis Shammai's camp did according to Beis Hillel. They didn't argue. They weren't in disagreement. They were all in agreement of how Judaism works. It was never up for discussion. Never. They all agreed that Judaism comes straight from God and it was through Moses and the concept of prophecy. All these different things. No one ever came up with a concept that the way Allah is going to be determined, you know what, let's take a vote, not to the Sanhedrin, let's take a vote, Let, let's go out into the city and let's gather to- together 500 people, and let's take a vote. That's not how you decide to No one ever came up with such a council. No one ever disagreed on that because that's a rule that was the, received directly from Moses. Oh, So now, so these are two very important things we have to understand before we continue to the next, the next uh, section. So smicha means an unbroken chain of ordination dating back to Moses, which means that the person who has smicha has tremendous, tremendous power tremendous religious power that, that, that can control not just the religiosity of the Jews when they're in shul or how, they, or how they do their Pesach Seder. It has an impact on how they do their business. It has an impact on how people are going to settle disputes. It's very, very powerful. And The other thing we have to understand is that even when the sages in any given generation are arguing about something, It's not because they disagree with each other on the essence of what's being dealt with. They have a disagreement on how it should be applied in a specific way. It's all in details, but it's not on the essential situation. It's not on what's being dealt with. All right, so let's continue. Yeah. Oh, why? So So what we're going to discuss now is why did it stop? Another interesting question is when did it stop? Another question is, how could it restart? <laughs> could it restart? Okay. So Maimonides writes a very interesting thing. Page 8. It appears to me, this is Maimonides speaking, Yeah, it appears to me that if all the wise men, oh, here's another thing about smicha. Smicha was only given in Israel. If you were in the land of Israel, you were able to give smicha. If you were not in the land of Israel, you couldn't give smicha. That's already an indication of why smicha got into trouble because a, a lot of rabbis were, were expelled from Israel. A lot of rabbis weren't in Israel. So that's another thing to keep in mind, that the location, I say, what, what, what's the secret about real estate? Location, location, location. So smicha, it's not just that you have to have that unbroken chain. You don't just have to have someone who's worthy of receiving smicha. It's also the location. All right, so it appears to me that if all the wise men in the land of Israel agree to appoint judges and convey smicha upon them, the smicha is binding says there's an option, there's a way to restart smitha. How? To get all of the sages in the land of Israel, at least the majority of them, to come together and say, you know what? We're restarting. And we are going to de- designate this and this person. He is going to receive smitha. That's going to restart. It's going to be binding. All of that religious power that came with smitha then, would come with it now. Uh, and these judges may adjudicate cases involving financial penalties and convey smicha upon others. One example of, of something that smicha does, you know, if, if, if John borrows money from Jack, he borrowed $100. Then Jack comes to him and says, pay me back $100. I, I never borrowed it. You can go to a rabbi today, and they'll fight it out between each other. And the rabbi, there are certain rules about determining who's right and who's wrong. That's fine. You don't, you don't need smicha. You don't need this unbroken chain of smicha in order to be able to, uh, to, as I say, to, to convey that law. However, let's say someone goes and steals $100. The law is if you steal $100 and you're brought to the court and it turns out that you actually stole, you don't just have to repay the $100. You have to pay $200. It's called KFO. You have to pay double. So it's not just you have to return that which was stolen. The thief is punished. In order to fine the thief that extra 100 bucks, you have to have smichel, my friend. Just, be, just because my name is Rabbi Levi Greenberg, I can't go and say, hey, because he stole hundred dollars, not only do you have to pay back hundred dollars, that's within my power. I can say the Torah says you have to pay back hundred dollars. But the punishment that you have to pay an extra hundred dollars, for that, you need to have smicha, which is the unbroken tradition, the chain of smicha that goes all the way back to Moses. Oh, no, let's not bring that up. <laughs> okay. All right, let's um, keep that for the Okay, so if so, why do the sages... So so one second. So it turns out, so, so Maimonides says it turns out that you don't really need to have an unbroken chain. You can restart it if you want. I mean, not if you want. If everyone's going to agree to restart it, let's restart it. So he says, if so, why do the sages suffer anguish over the institution of smicha so that the judgment of cases involving financial penalties would not be nullified among the Jewish people? Why, why did they risk their lives to continue smicha? Because, so the, the number of answers, because the Jewish people were dispersed and it is impossible that all could agree. Not because they're, they're stubborn. They just they, they can't communicate. They're all dispersed all over the place. So you can't really get a consensus of all the Jewish people about anything. Because they're all over. If, by contrast, there was a person who had received smicha from a person who had received smicha. He does not require the consent of all others. Say so if that tra- chain of, of, of smicha would have continued, if there would be someone today that has smicha all the way back to him, he doesn't need anyone to agree with him. He can just give smicha, that's it. Instead, he may adjudicate cases involving financial penalties for everyone for he received smicha from a court. The question whether smicha can be renewed requires resolution. <laughs> the Rambam says, what I'm saying here is, it's a thought, it's a possibility, but I'm not saying this as a fact. I'm not saying that it's absolute, that all the sages of Israel can get together and, uh, and do it, and figure it out. Now, Maimonides lived about 850 years ago, more 900 years ago. A yeah? fascinating story happened about 500 years ago, in the city of Tzfas. Uh, for whatever reason, there, was, there were certain issues that came up. Uh, they say it had to do with the fact that the Moranos, Anusim, from Spain, that the conversos right? They had converted to Christianity. You know, and then they, they, they ran away from Spain. They came to Tsvas. For some reason, there was an issue that had come up that the sages of the city of Tsvas, they realized that really the only way to, to solve this problem would be is if the institution of Smicha would, would exist. We need the institution of smicha, that power. We need to have that religious power in order to take care of this problem, this issue. So there was a rabbi, his name was Rabbi Yaakov Beirav. Rabbi Yaakov Beirav was one of the leaders of the Tzfas community. And he decided, you know what? It's time to renew smicha. So one thing we know for sure, by the time of Maimonides, there was no smicha because Maimonides is discussing renewing the smicha. So definitely by the time of Maimonides, 900 years ago, smicha was over. That chain had been broken. It was stopped. So about three, 400 years later, 500 years ago, Rabbi Yaakov Beirav wanted to renew it in order to take care of a certain problem that had come up. Um, and he managed to, to, uh, to convince... Now, Tzfas was a community of rabbis. It wasn't so simple to be a big, a big fish in Tzfas. Uh, for example, one of the people that were there was the author of the Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Jewish Law. Rabbi Yosef Karo the Beit Yosef, he he was one of the rabbis there till today. He's he's one of the, the authorities on Jewish law. Now it reminds me of a story. There was once uh, the chief rabbi of Russia, Rabbi Lazar, was one the, 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 the rabbi of Kfar Chabad. You know, Kfar Chabad is it's a it's a Chabad town in Israel. It's about three, four thousand families there, maybe. I studied it for two years. So the rabbi of Kfar Chabad, he was, a, he was a scholarly man, his was Rabbi Ashkenazi, was the rabbi for many years. So one time he was, he was in, in Moscow, and he went together with Rabbi Lazar to visit President Putin. I don't know if he was president then or prime minister or whatever his, whatever his title was. Anyway, so they come. So, so Rabbi Lazar introduced Rabbi Ashkenazi. He said, "He is the chief rabbi of Kfra Chabad in Israel." So Putin looks he says, "The Chabad village." He says, How? And now he's looking at rabbi, rabbi Ashkenazi had a white beard, you know he was an elderly man. Rabbi Lazar was young, you know, interesting, so he said. How can you compare this rabbi from Israel to our rabbi here? Our rabbi is the chief rabbi of three, four million Jews. I don't know how many Jews are, how many Jews are a million Jews that say are in Russia. He says and he, how, how many Jews live in Kharchabad? Three, four thousand. So Rabbi Lazar, he says, you have to understand, I'm the rabbi of a million Jews. He is the rabbi of three thousand rabbis. <laughs> it's not so simple. So it's a whole different, a whole different ballgame. So anyway, in Spas, in that city at the time, Rabbi Yaakov Beirav, he had a pool of. Huge rabbis. And he convinced about 25 to 30 rabbis to agree that, yes, it's time to re- re- reenact the smicha. Um, let's see how the Rebbe Another insight into the importance of ordination. Many years after ordination had ceased to exist, great Torah authorities gathered to renew it. At the time of Rabbi Yaakov Beirav, many great Torah scholars gathered and ordained it. On the foundation of Maimonides' statement, that if all the wise men of the land of Israel agree to appoint judges and convey ordination, they have the power to do so. From page 9, Rabbi Yaakov Beirav in turn ordained four Torah scholars, among them Rabbi Yosef Karo, who was the author of the Shulchan Aruch, of the code of Jewish Law, who in turn ordained Rabbi Mesha Alshich, who in turn ordained Rabbi Chaim Vital, who actually ended up becoming one of the greatest students of the Arizal, who was the great Kabbalist of Tzfas. anyway, However, this ordination also ceased. Why? Due to the controversy that arose from Rabbi Levi Ibn Khabib's opposition, the story is well known. So what happened here? They renewed the smicha, And all the rabbis of Tzfas were happy with it, etc. Finally, renewed the smicha. Now, Tzfas was from the larger Jewish communities at the time in Israel. However, in Jerusalem, there was a Jewish community there. there was a, by the way, there was, an, there was a Jewish community in Jerusalem from the time of the destruction of the temple, there never they'd never ceased to be a, a Jewish community in, in, the, in the city of Jerusalem. There's only one time in history where a Jewish community ceased to exist in the old city of Jerusalem, from 1948 to 1967. In the old city of Jerusalem, when the, when the, when the, the Jewish quarter in the old city was basically run over by the Arabs and they expelled them, etc. Then 1967, they came back. Um, anyway, so the rabbis of Tzfas, they decided out of respect for the city of Jerusalem, they're going to send a message to the rabbi, the chief rabbi of Jerusalem. And mind you, then Jerusalem maybe had 1,500 Jews. It was a very small community, very poor. And they notified him about it. And the rabbi said, absolutely not. Excuse me? You can't, you shouldn't renew the smicha." He was adamantly against renewing the smicha, And it became a serious controversy. It became a very big controversy to the point Rabbi Yosef Karo, who had received smicha, who, who, who in turn gave smicha to the next, to his student, who gave to another student, doesn't mention this smicha in his code of Jewish law. It petered out. Why? Because apparently not all the wise men of Israel agreed like Okay? And I, 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 apparently Rabbi Lebi even Chavib, ha- had his reasons. He said, I, I don't see it the same way as Rabbi Yaakov Beyrav. And I don't think that it's that, I, I think that it's detrimental to renew the smicha, and therefore you said no, absolutely not, do not renew the smicha. Understanding the story will will actually explain why it ceased in the first place. So here the Rebbe is going to go back and say like this: If ordination was so important, how, how do we know it was so important? First of all, Jews gave up their lives for it. Number two, at one point in history they tried to renew it, so that means it's a really important thing for Judaism. So if so, why did the chain of tradition stop? If every scholar endeavored to ordain his students, and if those students followed suit, continuing so generation after generation, why did it ultimately cease to exist? On the one hand, ordination, as we explained at length, is absolutely fundamental. On the other hand, it doesn't seem too difficult to accomplish. There are no special circumstances necessary, such as a temple or a high court in Jerusalem. The only imperative is that the scholar be worthy of ordination, and there were no doubt worthy scholars in every generation, and that the ordination take place in the land of Israel. And there were no doubt caravans that traveled regularly between Babylon and the land of Israel, which would have allowed the scholars of Babylon to come to Israel to be ordained and to ordain others. There seems to be no reason for their ordination to cease to exist at any point in time. This raises a difficult question. Why and how did ordination come to an end, even after the dispersion? Come on. All you need is one, two, three. How how many people do you need already? And people were traveling to Israel all the time, right? So, So what's the deal? Even if there was no real communication going on. The common understanding of the matter is that ordination ceased for fear of the Roman government. However, if ordination is so integral to Judaism, it is unlikely that the Roman persecution managed to stop it everywhere within such a short period of time. The rabbi basically rejects the notion that the Romans succeeded, says that makes no sense. There is no doubt that despite the Roman decree against ordination, the Torah sages made every effort to continue the institution of ordination due to its importance. What about the danger of engaging in prohibited activity? They could have certainly found ways to deal with it. They could have done the ordination secretly or in a distant town in a forsaken corner of the country, but the government was, pres- was presumably not searching for sages capable of ordaining because sages were usually found in the famous yeshiva centers teaching Torah to many students, not in far-flung villages. It's impossible to say that it was impossible to keep the chain going. That's what Eber basically says. It for sure did not end at the time of the Romans. So page 11. The following explanation could resolve the fact that ordination ceased, as well as the custom to establish the new month Based on moon sightings. Okay, here we're gonna. Uh, we don't have a lot of time left, so I don't want to dwell on this too much. But um, today we have a Jewish calendar, right? We have a calendar, and you can predict from today for another thousand years exactly. You know when is Pesach going to be? When is uh, Sukkot going to be? And which year is going to be a Jewish leap year with an extra month? And exactly what day is going to be Rosh Chodesh and uh, the beginning of the new month, etc. But the original organic Jewish calendar was not like that. It was basically every single month you would have to have a moon sighting, you would have to have two witnesses seeing the birth of the new moon, they would have to come to the court, they would have to testify that they saw it, and they would be what's called in, the, in, in, in Hebrew mekadesh l'chaydash, they would sanctify the new month, they would, they would designate that day as Rosh chodesh as the beginning of the new month. So, so why did that end? Why why did the Judaism always say, okay, from now on, there's no more moon sighting, you know, for now, we're never going to do an official calendar. So it's like this. A time came when there wasn't a central established court. The sages were scattered in many different locations, and as time passed, it was no longer clear who was ordained and who was not. Now, here is a big, big thing. You have to realize something. How do I know this guy is legit? How do I know? How do you know? There's only one way to know. Call a friend and say, You ever heard of this guy? Yeah, I know this guy. He's legit. If he's legit for my friend, he's legit for me. What, what does that mean? In other words, in the time in the times of Moses, right? Let's just imagine this like this. In the times of Moses, everyone knew everything, right? Everyone knew everybody. So you knew if this guy was a fraud and if the guy was real. Throughout all the generations, because most of the Jewish people were centered in the land of Israel or in Babylon, etc., everyone knew everybody. And if someone walked into the show one day and said, "I am rabbi so and so, and I have smicha," if no one ever heard of the guy who said, "Was that you had smicha by who?" By this rabbi, ah, that rabbi gave you smicha. Fine, good for me. Why? Because because I know who that rabbi is. We, we know who that rabbi is. No problem. Everyone everyone was maybe two or three degrees separated from each other. Everyone everyone knew everybody, right? Um, if I hear just a, a simple thing, if I hear about a rabbi in Israel. Now, I don't know if the guy is legit. I call one of my friends in Israel. Have you heard of this guy? They probably did. The guys in Israel do the same with America, they do the same with Europe. People that are around each other, they know each other. And so everyone knows, everyone, everyone somehow is, that's the only way to, to preserve the legitimacy of the tradition. There's a certain, uh, how do you say, uh, uh, peer pressure. I want to call it peer pressure, peer knowledge that kind of allows this institution to continue. But when there was a very serious dispersion, that was already impossible. It was very, very difficult. Therefore, a Torah scholar may have been ordained by a sage in one location, but he may have moved to another location where his patron sage was not well known as a qualified ordainer. And a controversy may have arisen as to the legitimacy of his ordination. This would definitely be the case if the scholar wished to establish the new month according to the new moon sightings. The controversy would no doubt be even greater. Well, it was like this. Here was the problem. In order to do moon sightings, you had to have smicha, right? So someone's going to come and say, I have smicha, and therefore I'm going to establish the new moon based on a moon sighting. Excuse me, where's your smicha? Who gave you smicha? I never heard of that. And it's going to cause a serious problem. Therefore, the sages no longer went to great lengths to convey ordination. And over time, the numbers of ordained scholars dwindled until they became entirely extinct. Um, In other words like this, it wasn't persecution that canceled out ordination. It It was on purpose. The sages understood that the way the way the, the, the way Jews, the way Judaism was evolving, as a result of persecution, as a result of exile, as a result of dispersion, they realized that the authenticity of the institution of smicha would be called into question, simply because people wouldn't know each other anymore. There wouldn't be that type of um, confirmation, peer confirmation. It would be impossible. And if it would be impossible to confirm if this one was legitimate or not, you know what type of controversies would happen? It would tear the people apart. It would tear apart communities. And therefore, the rabbi said, "You know what? Better not to do smicha." What do we miss out as a result of not having smicha? Penalties? Fine, no penalties. We can't do the moon sightings. We have a different calendar. As equally legitimate, by the way. As equally legitimate. Moses was told there will come a time that they will no longer do moon cycles, that they would have an official set calendar. It's not that the calendar that we have today is uh, is not as legitimate as the previous one. We're, our Pesach is as legitimate as Moshe's Pesach. It's no less legitimate. Why must we have an official calendar? Because we, we can't do moon cycles today because we don't have smicha. And keeping up the smicha would just cause that the calendar should become the subject of a serious controversy. Imagine you'd have in the same community, some people keeping Pesach on Wednesday and others keeping it on Thursday. It'd be a disaster. Right? So they, they intentionally kind of canceled it out. No more smicha. We're not going to continue this because in the current situation, this is what's going to happen. Lots of proof to the fact that smicha itself could be the source of controversy. The saga and tzfat, when they renewed the smicha, woo, the whole Israel went on fire. Earlier, we mentioned the famous controversy which had Rabbi Yaakov Beirab and the Torah scholars of tzfat on one side, Rabbi Levi Ibn Khaviv and the scholars of Jerusalem on the other, regarding the reinstation of ordination. There too, when the scholars of tzfat realized that it was creating a controversy, and Rabbi Levi Ibn Khaviv was insistent that the reinstation was inappropriate, they had no choice but to cancel their plans. They had come to the conclusion we should reinstate smicha, and then they realize one second it's not worth the fight, it's not worth breaking apart the community. So that's it; they canceled it out. This is to the extent that Rabbi Yosef Kara, one of the scholars ordained by Rabbi Yaakov Berab, makes no mention of his ordination in his code of Jewish law, and he even determines how we are to conduct ourselves in the modern era in the absence of ordination. Despite being ordained himself, he states clearly in Shulchan Aruch today we don't have smicha, and therefore. The way you appointed a new rabbi is in such and such a way. We call it smicha, but it's not really smicha. This was because he realized that the ordination had not been widely accepted as legitimate due to Rabbi Levi, even Khabib's opposition. The following, um, yeah, okay. Let's skip number 13. Let's go to page 14. Now we are left. Okay, so so now, so, so the rabbi, it's very interesting. Uh, this is the first time I, I, I heard about this. And I was always under the impression that when did Smicha stop? Probably sometime after uh, Rabbi Uda Ben Bava, you know, when he was killed, or maybe a little bit after that. But uh, a very, very long time ago, there I was basically saying it's impossible to say that it stopped then because who are the Romans to stop Smicha? The Jews are stronger than that. The Jews, if Smicha is so important to the Judaism, they would keep it going. But the fact is that it stopped. Why did it stop? Because at a certain point, the dispersion was so much that the authenticity of the institution of smicha could seriously be called into question, could become the, the, the cause of so much controversy and strife that the sages decided it's not worth keeping it. Up. It's not worth keeping up that uh, that chain. And therefore, they canceled out the chain. The only way to reinstate the chain is if all of the sages will agree to it, then we're out Different. It's a different story, but if not all of them can agree with it, then we have a problem. Okay, now we are only left with determining exactly when ordination ceased to tire. Many of the most recent scholars to deal with this issue bring evidence that the ordination continued to exist throughout the Geonite period. Geonite period is after the after the redaction of the Talmud. For about two three hundred years, there was an era called the era of the Geonim. Um, one of the f- most famous ones are Rabbi Sadia Um, During his lifetime, there was actually a tremendous controversy about the Jewish calendar. And he was one of the great heroes who ensured that the, the legitimacy and authenticity of the calendar should be kept, should be preserved. Uh, but at any rate, um, there are some scholars that say that throughout that period, there was smicha still going on. Moreover, there's a letter from Rabbi Evya Targaon, written in the year 4854, which is 1094 Common Era in which he mentions several people who were ordained in his time, himself being among them. And he says that one of them traveled to Haifa to sanctify the new year. Um, With all our questions about the unlikelihood of the secession of ordination, the opposite seems to be the case. We should assume that it continued to exist for much longer until we find concrete evidence that it ceased at a certain time period. Although we do not have evidence of ordination in later eras, a lack of evidence does not mean that it didn't happen. It's quite logical to assume that our continued far beyond the Talmudic period. It would be very worthwhile to find scholars to fully investigate this issue in the manuscripts that are available. Uh, being that new, that new manuscripts occasionally come to light, it is likely that newly discovered manuscripts will shed light on this complicated issue. So, there's, there's a few things that actually emerge from this. Uh, it's a very, very fascinating conversation here. First of all, that it, it, it's, it's important. To appreciate and understand what smicha represents, smicha represents that unbroken chain of tradition. Um, I was once—I I always mention this—the the introduction of Maimonides to Mishnah Torah, he gives name after name after name, forty generations from Moses, the redaction of the Talmud. Remember right? the Talmud was concluded by Rav Ashi. Forty generations, name, 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 name. It's fascinating. There's no broken telephone over here. There's there's a serious you know connection. Um, Now, that tradition never stopped. The tradition of Torah never stopped. In every generation, there were rabbis and teachers and scholars and students. And that tradition continued all the way. It used to be that that tradition was represented by the smicha. The smicha, which is that official ordination. But that smicha stopped. And and according to what the Rebbe explains here, it didn't stop because of a mistake. It didn't stop because some Roman was able to snuff it out from the Jews. Romans have no control over Jewish life, period. They tried to get rid of Shabbos, they failed. Get rid of Gris, they failed. They failed at everything. Romans are failures. That's all they are. They built a bunch of buildings that today people visit and they pay a lot of money to see a broken down, good-for-nothing building. That's it. That's all they're good for. And here we are today and we have the tradition of Judaism. The Romans cannot take credit for getting rid of Smicha. The only reason why Smicha ceased was in order to preserve the community, to to preserve the Jewish people. The sages realized that preserving smicha would cause more problems than good. So they canceled out smicha. It was on their own that they basically canceled out the smicha over time. That's it. The chain of tradition continues. Absolutely. It continues to the point that there's a possibility to renew that smicha. But apparently there's no need for that smicha. When Mashiach will come, Smicha will come back. Meisha will be here, etc. There's no better way to get smicha than from Meisha himself, right? But you, you actually you don't need to get it from Meisha. All you have to do is Meisha, you use it to someone, to someone, to someone. It makes no difference if I'm two people removed from Meisha or a thousand people removed from Meisha. It's the same smicha. Um, But the main thing is that we should understand and appreciate that uh, the, this, the, the chain of tradition is an unbroken chain of tradition. And that we open up a Shulchan Aruch, code of Jewish law, and, um, we should know that what we are reading is God's word and God's desire and the way God instructs us to live our lives. And uh, when we do so, we will merit very soon for the coming of the Shia, the construction of the Holy Temple, the reinstation of the Sanhedrin, and Smicha will be back. Mm-hmm. Then, when Jack is going to steal $100 from John, not only will they have to pay $100, dollars we will have to pay double, they have to pay $200. Anyway, all right, thank you all for joining us, and we look forward to seeing you next week. Sunday.